So Ezekiel 33, if you have been with us for the first 32 chapters, here's what you've heard over and over and over again. You're all going to die. <laughs> By the way, did I mention? You're all going to die. So it's not the most encouraging section of the Bible. And Ezekiel now goes from the sandwich board prophet who's wearing like the end is near, repent, hell's coming. He goes from that to a very different kind of guy. He's now a heralder of hope. And we're going to see why in chapter 33. Because what happens is what he's been saying for 32 chapters, essentially, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. It actually happens. So if you look at verse 21 of chapter 33, that's what he hears. A fugitive comes to the refugee camp outside of Babylon by a sewage canal and says, Jerusalem has been struck down. So now he doesn't have to defend himself anymore. I'm a prophet. What I'm saying is true because now what he has been saying for 32 chapters has been proven true. So God had said in chapter two, verse five, listen, bud, if you do what I ask you to do, all the people will know a prophet has been in their midst. So now, now they know it. So he changes this position that he had been in of God speaking through him as the end's coming. He changes it now to one that's very different. It's one of hope. And hope is so important. But not just hope, it's what you've put your hope in that really matters. So if you want to read a book, it's considered to be one of the most important books written in the 20th century. It's by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Um, it was written or the research of it was done when he was a, uh, a member of a concentration or a, a Holocaust survivor. He went to all kinds of different concentration camps. And he was a trained psychologist. So he's there doing stuff and he starts to just kind of make some observations based on his training. And out of that comes Man's Search for Meaning. It's a, it's a really interesting book. And what he said was this. He said, in this camp, this death camp, there were some reactions people had to the circumstances going around them. Number one, people just got bad. They would turn on their fellow Jews they would betray, they would steal, they'd become informers, they'd work for the Nazis. They just became bad. That was, that was reaction number one. Number two was people just give up. And the moment they gave up, he gives an example of a guy, they just died. Once they lost that spark, it was like, it was, a, it was, a, it was the death nail. They, they, when they gave up, they died. But he said there was a third reaction that he saw in people is what he called the heroes. And they responded to these exact same circumstances with courage, with sacrificing, with encouraging other people, with giving up their own food for those that were sick, giving up their beds for people that needed them. They just responded in a whole different way. And his conclusion in that book is this. Either you go bad, give up, or become a hero based on what your hope was. Not just hope, but what you had your hope in. What was the meaning behind your life, right? Because if you had a hope that could be taken from you, you'd go bad or you'd give up. 
So if your hope was in money, well, all your money had been taken from you and you'd go bad or you'd give up. If your hope was in your family, very often these people had watched their families killed. And so they'd either go bad or they'd get up. If your hope was your reputation, like I was this, I was this kind of a person in society. Well, now you're just a number. You had no reputation. And so if your hope was in your reputation, you'd go bad or you'd give up. And what he determined in this book was most people do not have a hope that can overcome the death camps. Most people do not have that. Most people have, and this is me now, have what I call the Lion King hope. If you remember the conversation, the Simba is talking to his dad and they sing the song, The Circle of Life, right? The Circle of Life, oh, how beautiful the Circle of Life is. And then Simba asks his dad, well, how do we become part of the Circle of Life? And so his dad answers, well, we eat the antelope, the antelope eats the grass rather, then we eat the antelope, but then one day we die, we go into the ground and, and we become fertilizer and the grass grows up from us and the antelope eat the grass. It's a circle of life. What a wonderful meaning for life. You're fertilizer. That'll get you through the death camp, won't it? So here's what Ezekiel is going to lay out from chapter 33 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 48. Here's the hope, the only hope that can sustain you in a death camp or a refugee camp outside of the worst city in the Bible by a sewage canal. Here's the only hope that'll get you through. So in chapter 33, what happens is it's a transition chapter. It's like, a, uh, it's like um, a weaving together of these two sections. And what happens is it's kind of grabbing some things that had happened in the past and then pushing us now to the hope of the, of the future. So we get Ezekiel's role in this chapter, but we also get this representation of chapter 18. If you remember chapter 18, it's all about, hey, the righteous if they're righteous for years, but they're wicked today, God says you're wicked. But if you're wicked for years and you repent and you're doing righteous today, God says you're righteous. That what matters is not your past, but right now. So that's where we're at. So chapter 33, verse one, down to nine, is a restating of Ezekiel's role. You'll remember this from chapter three. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, speak to your people. And say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees a sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword come and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Remember that? You're gonna be a watchman. Verse seven. So you son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, a wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So this is God reminding Ezekiel, this was my commission to you. You were to speak my word. And if you had done that, if you'd obeyed me, you didn't have to worry about the outcome. Whether people listened to you or not, didn't matter. It was obedience. 
So now for chapter after chapter, year after year, Ezekiel has faithfully proclaimed what God had said and it had taken place. So what God's doing right here is this. He's saying, Ezekiel, you did your job. Ezekiel, good job, buddy. And you're gonna hear reports now from people coming into this little refugee camp, the refugees, and it's gonna be brutal and bad. Don't blame yourself. You did what you're supposed to do. You continually warned them, don't do these things. They didn't listen. So Ezekiel, good job. It's a way of God almost affirming Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I'm proud of you. You now for year after year, you've been my watchman. You've done good. Thank you. It's affirmation. When I read this this morning, I thought, man, I don't do this much. I wrote a, all right, I didn't write. I read a book called Positive Affirmation a couple years ago by Samuel Crabtree. I recommend it. And in that book, he says, the ratio of affirming words to correcting words should be minimally four to one. And you should be really targeting 10 to one. I'm like, man, I have those reversed. I do 10 corrections. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Good job. So when I read that, I was like, super, super like, oh Lord, help me to be more affirming. Help me to remember when I've asked somebody to do something, my kids, whatever it is, to then say, good job. You did it well. It really matters to people. How affirming are you? How affirming am I? When's the last time you've affirmed your wife, husbands? Now you're saying, Matt, you're gonna make this really awkward now next time I do it. She's gonna be like, see, you're just obeying that guy. (laughs) When's the last time you affirmed your children and said, I'm really proud of you. Good job. I asked you to do this thing. You're doing it so well. We naturally tend towards, maybe I should say, I naturally tend toward correction, but not affirmation. God had given a command, chapter three, and now he says, good job. You've been my watchman, you've done it. So that's this first section. Then in verse 10, here's what happens. You start to see the survivors and here's what the survivors are saying. And you son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares Yahweh God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So the survivors are now saying, we're just bullet cases. Ezekiel, you've been right. We've been unjust. We've been idolaters. We just should die. So God, what God's gonna do in verse 12 and on is he's gonna repeat really quickly chapter 18, where chapter 18 was this. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by that. What are you doing right now? Don't lean on your past good works or don't be anchored by your past bad works. What are you doing right 
now. The past is a memory. The future is a shot in the dark. The present is a gift. So God says, live right now. Live. That's the gospel. Do you know that? That's the gospel. I'm not defined by my parents' sin or my grandparents' sins or even my past anymore. I'm defined by what Jesus Christ declares about me. And so I can live. And even my past, Genesis 50, 20, God can turn it for good. Think about Chuck Colson. He's, to me, one of the best examples of a past being just transformed into something good. He was called Nixon's hatchet man. Okay, Nixon was not a choir boy. It's like being called Genghis Khan's hatchet man. Like, that's really bad. He was the first guy to be sentenced to prison in Watergate. Goes to prison, and there things change. Instead of becoming a politician for his life, he becomes a pastor, starts prison fellowship, which is now in 125 countries and has ministered to millions and millions and millions of broken people. That's it. Live, God declares. Live, God declares to you and to me. So then skipping forward, verse 21, we get news now. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, I've told you Ezekiel loves dates. He's a date guy, a little OCD. A fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of Yahweh had been upon me that evening before the fugitive came. And he had opened my mouth by the time the man came in, in the morning, so my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. If you remember in chapter three, verse 26, God had told Ezekiel, you're gonna be mute unless I speak through you. Most likely for all these years, the only time Ezekiel has been able to speak is when God's spirit has moved upon him. Now, finally, he's able to talk again. That's what this appears to say. So a survivor comes and says, listen, the city has been destroyed. Ezekiel, you've been right. And then really interesting, verse 30, here's what happens to Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from Yahweh. Here's what's happening to Ezekiel now. He becomes famous. He goes viral. People are now at the doorposts and at the street corners and the marketplace. They're saying, man, we gotta go listen to Ezekiel. He's right. So he now becomes famous. You nailed it, Ezekiel. What else are you gonna say? So God warns him. Verse 31. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act and their heart is set on their gain. Heart problem. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. You're like a celebrity. For they come to hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. How fascinating. Ezekiel, 
since chapter 3, has faced opposition. And so he's had to do radical things to try to get people's attention, digging holes in walls, laying on his side, all this stuff. So he's faced opposition for most of his career. From chapter 33 forward, he faces a different problem. Flattery. Great word today, Ezekiel. Man, you nailed it. But we're not gonna go do it. He faces a very different thing. And so God says this, resist, verse 32, becoming an entertainer. Resist that tendency to entertain them because that's what they're gonna want. They're gonna want you to entertain and be like, oh man, we love that. Resist that. Instead, verse 33, remain a true prophet so they know, stay true to your call. Flattery is dangerous. So dangerous. It's been said, I think rightly so, there's two ways to ruin a person. Failure, or success. <laughs> Failure or success. Ezekiel's faced both of them. Now he faces maybe the tougher of the two. You ever blown it when somebody has flattered you a bit? I have. So I've known my whole life that I cannot sing. Just tone deaf, whatever it is, I don't have that gift. I learned it in the first grade because I went out for this play, it was a musical, and I auditioned for a part and while I was adi- auditioning, the lady, the, the director stopped me and she said, hey, you're supposed to be singing this part. And I said, I was singing. And she said, you can move the curtain. That's what you can do. Your job will be moving the curtain, not singing or whatever you were doing right there. So I've always kind of known I'm not a singer. Well, there was a point where flattery got me because I go to the school of ministry and in the school of ministry, Jim Wright, who was the leader of that, he was constantly having us sing. Like we would go to McDonald's and before we could eat at McDonald's, he'd be like, men, praise the name. So we're just in McDonald's, all 24 of us just start singing along with Jim Wright in McDonald's. So you're always singing everywhere you go. And then we had morning worship, Tuesday through Friday, an hour of just singing in the sanctuary. So we're just singing all the time. So this guy, I was like, I told this guy, man, I cannot sing. He goes, no way, man. You can sing. You're getting, you're getting really good at singing. So I started kind of believing that. I think maybe I am. All right. But I'm an engineer, so I test things. So downstairs in the room that I live in the house that I lived in, the A-frame, there was this classroom. And in the classroom, they had this recorder where you could record the teachings. So I said, I'm going to record myself and I'll play it back. And then I'll be able to know, can I sing? So it was lunchtime, everybody was eating lunch. And so I went down to the classroom. Nobody's in there. I put a tape in, I closed it and I start singing to this instrument. And then upstairs, I hear this kind of rumbling, but I paid no attention to it because there was always wrestling or whatever. And then a moment later, as I'm singing my heart out, here opens the door and half of the school of ministry is standing at the door. And like, what are you doing? I'm like, isn't it obvious? I'm singing. No, you're not. The speaker is on upstairs. We're all listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) flattery you gotta be careful of it Ezekiel is being warned don't succumb to this don't get into trying to entertain them you stay the prophet you need to stay and a word for us right here God warns Ezekiel they're not gonna listen to you You can preach great sermon. You can be true. You've been true for 33 chapters, but it doesn't mean they're going to do it. 
as believers that love God's word and listen to it a bunch, we have to be very careful the tendency of believing just because we heard it, that must mean we're doing it. Mm -mm. It takes like, okay, I'm gonna do this. All right, Lord, you've spoken to me and I'm gonna obey. This is what you've said to me. Okay, I'm gonna walk this thing out. If we don't, I think we're like dreamers. You know, when you dream, you really believe you're hitting that golf ball. You really believe you're hitting the baseball. You really believe you're running, kicking the soccer ball, whatever it is. But your brain, here's what it's done. It sends a little message to this gate in your spinal cord. And that gate shuts off all those signals so they don't go to your hands and to your feet. And your spouse is very appreciative of that. You don't kick and you don't stomp people. But you really believe you're doing it. The only part of your body that's actually active is your eyes because they have a direct optical nerve that goes right to your brain. So that's why you have rapid eye movement. I think a lot of times I can be just like a dreaming Christian. Ah, I think I'm doing, ah, yeah. Wait a second. I haven't moved. I haven't actually obeyed. I haven't done what God has asked me to do. Jesus in Matthew 7, after he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, brilliant truth. He says, there's two kinds of people here today. The first kind of person hears what I just said and doesn't do it. And they built their house on the sand. And when the water comes, guess what happens? We should all know that from this past week, (laughs) right? Look out, your house is gone. But the other person hears what I have said and does it. And he's like a man that has built his house upon the rock. And when the storms come and they will, that house stands strong. So Ezekiel here gets this kind of recap Hey, you've done good. Thanks, Ezekiel. And then listen to these refugees that are coming in and are really gonna be heartbroken. You need to remind them, don't be anchored by your past. What matters is right now. And you, Ezekiel, look out because now they're gonna like you. And that's the most dangerous place in the world for a prophet to be. So then from here forward, what you get is super hope. And the hope, I want you to notice this and we'll move fast. We'll make it to chapter 37 tonight because Really brilliant chapter. What you're gonna see over and over is this. God, what's what's gonna happen? The hope that's gonna happen is not dependent upon man's ability to respond. God just said that ain't happening. But it is based upon God's willingness to act. And what God's gonna say over and over in these chapters is, I'm going to do it, period. I'm not gonna depend on this person or that person. I'm gonna make this happen. It's gonna happen by me. Right? So it all begins, the hope part begins in chapter 34 with the shepherd king. Because hope always begins with the shepherd king. Look at verse one. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds of Israel, thus says Yahweh God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. These are bad rulers, bad kings. Therefore, verse seven, 
You shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares Yahweh God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there, has, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and I have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they will not be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says Yahweh God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Here's what God says. You guys have had really bad rulers. When it speaks about shepherds here, it's not priests necessarily. It's really the kings that have been ruling over Israel for years. And they were bad. And God had actually warned Israel about this. One day you're gonna ask for a king and he's gonna do all these bad things to you. And this is way before they asked for a king. This is Moses telling them that. Look out, when you ask for a king, he's gonna rule over you. He's gonna take the fat of your sheep. He's gonna take your sons. He's gonna take your daughters. He's gonna do all this stuff to you. God warns them, look out. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter nine, they start demanding a king. Give us a king, give us. We wanna be like the other nations. We wanna be just like them. But don't you know this is gonna happen to you? We demand a king. So they get a king and the kings do exactly what God had warned them about. Be very careful about demanding things from God. God, give me a wife. God, give me a husband. Look out. Because I sit in rooms sometimes with people. God, make me single. <laughs> That's demanding the opposite now. Be careful of demanding from God. The best way to say is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Man, casting that on him. Jesus, guide me. Jesus, I'm not sure about this. Lord, I need your wisdom on this. Man, that's the best way to be. Not demanding, or you might end up like these guys in a bad spot. So then here's what God says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to take my people. I'm going to gather them back together. I'm going to do this. I'm not gonna trust this to anybody else. I will do it. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I'm going to feed them, verse 14, with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture shall they feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Very important verse right there. And I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, says Yahweh God, behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep and between ram and ram. Verse 20, therefore, thus says Yahweh God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Who could that possibly be? Ah, 
Look at verse 15 and then look at verse 23. Verse 15, I myself, who's speaking? God, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. Verse 23, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. When you put those two verses together, what do you get? You get the incarnation. I'm gonna do it, but it's also gonna be my servant David. It's just brilliant what you see right here. It's Jesus. And if you look at this chapter, how many times did Jesus grab these terms, right? I'm gonna lead them to, I'm gonna be the good shepherd. I'm gonna be the one that rules them. I'm gonna bind up the brokenhearted. I'm gonna heal them. I'm gonna take care of them. I'm gonna seek and save the lost. I'm gonna leave the 99 and go after the one. How? It's such a brilliant, brilliant passage. This is where hope begins. Hope does not begin with a government, with a ruler. Hope does not begin with Trump. Hope begins with Jesus, the shepherd king. Colossians 1.27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the only hope that sustains in a refugee camp outside of Babylon or in the hard job that you have or a difficult relationship you're in. It's the only hope that sustains the shepherd king. So that's where it begins. Now what we get in chapter 35 is this. It's the hope of the land. So after Ezekiel, we're gonna jump into the book of Genesis on both Sundays and Wednesdays. And what you see in Genesis is there is this massive priority on the land. Like the land really plays into that. One of the blessings to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is what? Land. I'm gonna give you this land. So in chapter 35 and through the first part of chapter 36, verse 15, there's hope now for the land because the land right now is run over, destroyed, burned to the ground, cropless, desolate, bad. So God says, I'm gonna bring back some hope to this land. But he does something before that. And it's really, really good to get. Look at chapter 35, verse one. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says Yahweh God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am Yahweh because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Then skipping forward to chapter 36, verse one. And you son of man prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says Yahweh God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you became the talk of evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, the desolate place, the desert cities, 
which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nation and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with a wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make it a pasture land of prey. Does this ring a bell with anybody? Chapter 25. God had proclaimed the same thing on Edom, Mount Seir before. So he's already done it. This is Esau, if you remember. Esau's descendants become the Edomites. And verse five of chapter 35 says this, they had a perpetual enmity with Israel. And we went over that in chapter 25, that Esau's descendants, even though they're cousins of Israel, Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Esau becomes the Edomites. Jacob, his twin brother, becomes Israel and has the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jacob had stolen the blessing from Esau and Esau never forgave him. He was full of bitterness and enmity. And you see it play out for 1500 years. It still continues here. And when King Nebuchadnezzar breaks down the wall and takes Jerusalem, people who had escaped were running away. And what did the Edomites do? They captured them. And Obadiah tells us, they turned them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So now here's what's gonna happen. Those refugees who had tried to escape, been grabbed by the Edomites, turned back over to Nebuchadnezzar. Now they're being drugged across the desert and now they're being deposited in this refugee camp where Ezekiel is at. So God is saying, remind them, remind them, vengeance is mine. Remember we talked about that in chapter 25? That the Edomites are never gonna read this, that this message was for Israel, for those people, because refugee camps are places where they just stir up that kind of stuff. Animosity, bitterness, unforgiveness, we'll get back at them. When we get back in the line, land, son, you take vengeance on the Edomites. That's the way the world works. And God's saying to his people, no, no, don't do that. Uh-uh, vengeance is mine. He repeats it twice. Because you and I are hardwired for grudges. Do you know that? We're just hardwired. That's like, man, from Genesis 3 on, we are hardwired to remember what has happened to us and to be bitter and hold grudges. I'll give you an example that maybe proves it. Has anyone heard of a band called the Sons of Maxwell? Really? It's amazing. So the lead guitarist, his name is Dave Carroll, gets on a United flight. They've checked in all their luggage. They're going to the next place to play. And, and he's watching the luggage. You, know, you, you can sit there sometimes and watch like luggage get loaded. He sees his guitar case and he sees it like fall off. And then they're like throwing it back and forth. And he's like, ah, what are you doing to my guitar? Well, when he gets the guitar at the next spot, he actually told one of the stewardesses, hey, I just saw my guitar get fully abused. They're like, whatever, write a report. They didn't really care. So he gets to the next spot, gets his luggage. Well, his, his $3,500 tailor is broken. So he obviously is upset about that because he needs to be playing it. So he talks to United and they just give him the runaround. Cost him $1,200 to fix it. They will not help him in any way. So this is what he does. He wrote three songs. You can Google them. They're called United Breaks Guitars, the trilogy. They went viral in 2008. They just went, exploded. And news agencies are picking it up and they're playing it. They're actually kind of funny. I watched them today. So it, it, they just get picked up. They go viral. Well, in four days, 
United lost 10% on their stock, $180 million. Does that make you smile? But someone claps. We're hardwired for grudges, right? We're like, yeah, you stuck it to the man. Where you get him? <laughs> it's in us. We like that. And so God has to remind his people, when you go back, don't bring your bitterness. Leave that bitterness in Babylon. Go back to the land and flourish and be my people. I'll take care of those things. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Listen, maybe there's something in 2016 that hurts you. Leave it in 2016. Don't drag it into another year. Learn the lesson that God's trying to teach us right here. Let it go. Let it go. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm letting that go. I'm gonna let God take care of that. I'm gonna live free in 2017, for God has me. So that's why he repeats it, because we're so hardwired for it. So in verse eight, God now switches the hope on. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am with you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the city shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. Genesis 1. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in the former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. When will they know that he's Yahweh? When things are better for you than you ever imagined. I love that. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. You just keep on going. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's brilliant. Just this hope, 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 hope. You know how powerful hope is? It's the gasoline for life. My favorite example is uh, a guy at John Hopkins University took a rat and they took these rats and they dumped them in these big barrels of water. And, you know, the rats don't like getting wet, so they'd swim to the side and just kind of be a little bit frustrated at it. And they kept doing that. But then they did this to the rats. They would hold them over that tank and they're like, now they know they're going to drop me. I don't like that but they put them in this cylinder that would hold them extremely still. So they would struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle because they didn't want to drop. And they'd struggle and struggle and they'd monitor their heartbeat. And their heartbeat would be like, go way up. And then at some point, that rat would just give up because it couldn't move and its heartbeat would drop down. And at that moment, they'd open that thing. And when that rat hit the water, it would not swim a stroke. It would sink to the bottom of that tub and drown. Why? It gave up. That's how important hope is. Hope is our gasoline. So God now just starts to flood the hearts of these refugees outside of Babylon by a sewage canal with hope. This is what's going to happen to you. This is what's gonna happen to you. So in verse 15 on down, here's what we get. There's hope and the two parts of the hope are this. Hope for God's honor, and that's how it begins. And then hope for the human heart. And I've said Ezekiel is the book that for the first time says idols actually reside in the human heart. Remember that in chapter four? That's the problem. Your heart is an idol factory. That's what's caused these cycles. So there's hope 
for God's honor and the human heart. So verse 22, chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will be vindicated. The holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. And through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all the idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and for your abominations. When do they remember their evil deeds? When God has been so good to them. Oh, God, how you be so good to me? It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And then he says, verse 35, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Brilliant. Brilliant passage. First, God says, hey, this is for my name. I'm not doing this for you. This is for my holy name so that the nations will know my character. And then, then you get, I think, one of the best descriptions of the new covenant in the Old Testament. And it's verses 25, 26, and 27. That there's gonna be this heart thing that happens and I've said before, the introduction to Ezekiel was this. We went through the entire overview of the Old Testament. And I said, if you look at from Genesis 3 all the way to Ezekiel, you look at humans, there's one word that describes humanity in that section. What's that word? Failure. Cain kills Abel, right? The very first two brothers, men they kill each other. You keep going. Abraham fails in his faith. Jacob the swindler, the, the deceiver, the liar, David, the best king, yet he was a murderer and adulterer, Solomon with his idolatry. I mean, you just keep going on. What, what in the world? Well, in Genesis 3, what happened is a snake bit the human heart and started poisoning it from that on. So now there's just kind of this selfish rebellion against God. 
treason against the rightful ruler of earth, this anger, this bitterness, this grudge thing that just happens in the human heart, that we're just being, ugh. But even in Genesis 3, there's this hope, right? There's a crusher coming. It's going to crush that serpent. There's hope coming. And we get it right here, that one day, God is going to get the hell out of you and me. One day, God is going to get the hell out of this good earth. That's going to happen through the shepherd king. And for you and me right now, it happens by this new covenant thing. The hell that we've created. What do you mean that we've created? If you read Genesis 1, 1, it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and hell. No, it doesn't say that, does it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. There's no mention of hell. James 3 puts it like this. It says, hell is set on fire by the human tongue. Hell was created by the rebellious actions of God's creation. That's what created hell. And so God is saying, my project is to first get rid of it in your heart, Matt. And then one day I'm gonna wrap everything up that is hell and I'm gonna throw it in this place called the lake of fire and I'm gonna banish it. That that's coming. Good news, right? So God, my hope, my hope is right here that God has given me a new heart and a new spirit. I think one of the things that in the church today is not the right focus and there's a reason why. We tend to rightly put a lot of emphasis on what Jesus has done for us, on Calvary, the cross. And we spent a couple of weeks on that, just talking about what the cross do. It reconciled, it redeemed, it propitiated, did all these things for us. I had 12 things. Man, that's what the cross has done for us. Hugely important. But there's another side that very often gets ignored. And it's what Jesus has done to us when we get saved. That we get a new heart, and we get his spirit and we are now able to walk in his ways. So Romans 8, 12 has just been something that I, I have had like in my brain. It says this, I'm not a debtor to my flesh anymore. Whatever my flesh wanted me to do, I'm not a debtor to it. I don't have to do that anymore. Why? I've been set free. I don't have to do that. I've literally been set free. Too often I think we use this excuse like, well, I'm just a miserable sinner. Wait a second. You've been given a brand new heart, and you've been given the power of God's spirit. Wait a second. You're not a debtor to that anymore. You've been set free. Live, God would say over and over in Ezekiel. Live. Man, I'm going to live. Well, how do we get that new heart and that new spirit? Well, chapter 37, super quick. Verse one, the hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. They're old, dry bones. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> and I answered, oh, Yahweh God, or excuse me, oh, Lord God, you know. Good answer. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, ruach, chapter one, ruach to enter you and you shall live. 
So here's this incredible valley Ezekiel's taken to, full of dead bones. And he is told, prophesy, preach to these bones. Talk about a tough audience. Not getting a lot of response from them. It's good to teach to a tough audience. So I cut my teeth very early on in teaching at the Gospel Rescue Mission, 1996, 1997. I'd go in there one Tuesday a month. Uh, I think there was the third time I'm teaching there. I'm teaching away. And at the old Gospel Rescue Mission, when you taught, the people be in front of you and the door into it was right behind you. So I'm teaching away. I'm, you know, I'm nailing it. I think I am. And I hear this rattling on this door behind me. And so you have like a couple of options in that moment. Do you, do you address the rattling or do you just try to press on through it? I'm just like, I'm just gonna press on through, just keep going. It just kept rattling and making noise. Finally, after like a minute, the door opens and in just staggers this drunk dude. And he kind of walks by me. I'm like, hey, welcome, have a seat. He has a seat in the front. I just happened to be hitting the point on addiction. <laughs> so I'm talking about addiction. And he lasted about 30 seconds. And they just looked at the guy next to me and goes, I'm not gonna listen to this blank really loudly, gets up, knocks over his chair, and then stumbles his way out, fumbles with the door for a while, and then finally leaves. And I'm just sitting there. Everyone's looking at me like, what's she gonna do, preacher boy? And what I wanted to do was call down fire from heaven to roast him, but I didn't. For some reason, I just said, hey, can we pray for him? And I prayed a blessing on him. I'll tell you what, when I went back there, like months later, guys would remember me for one reason, not my beautiful points, not how polished my sermon was. You're the dude that prayed for the drunk guy. I like you. I've been that drunk guy. And I wish people would have prayed for me. Sometimes it's really good to preach to a tough audience. Good things can happen. And really good things happen right here. Look at verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Okay, God, I don't get this. And I prophesied and there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath, ruach, in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the ruach, thus says the Lord God, come from the four ruachs, O ruach, and ruach on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the Ruach came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And that's true. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. What a fascinating verse. And I will put my Ruach within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it, declares Yahweh. Brilliant. Now this could be what happened when Cyrus let them go back to the land, but it may be what happened in 1948, May 14th. Something that's never happened before in history. A nation that disappeared for almost 2000 years, all of a sudden blossoms in a day and becomes a nation unbelievable, right? 
And even better than that, God says this, it's verse 15, and then we're done. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him and join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Israel, as you know, was divided after Solomon. Rehoboam was not a good king. He didn't treat the people with respect. He was exactly the kind of king God warned Israel about. And so what happened is the nation divided and they actually warred against each other. The 10 Northern tribes, the two, nor the two Southern tribes. So the Northern tribes are often referred to as Ephraim and the Southern tribe was referred to as Judah. So these guys warred, but God says, what I'm gonna do is not only resurrect the nation, I'm going to unify it. And if you go to Israel today, what you'll see is there's not two Israels. There's not the 10 Northern tribes and one Southern tribe. It's one nation, all of it. I'm gonna resurrect them and I'm going to unify them. I wanna leave you with this point. You have this, the, the dead being revived, right? This uniting of two warring fractions that come together. Now, how does that happen? Prophesying, but also the Ruach or the spirit, that those two things go together. I think it's interesting that today when you look at the church and you'll say, hey, are you a believer? The way that we determine if someone's a believer, if they've been made alive, resurrected, is this. Do you believe these creeds? Do you believe that Jesus is God the Son, died for you on a cross, and three days later was resurrected? And so if we profess these things, then we're saved. And there's truth to that, Romans 8, right? There's truth to it, okay. But, excuse me, Romans 10, 9. If you believe in, if you, I'm not even trying to say it right now. It's like the most easy verse in the world. But guess what? I'll probably get it wrong. Right? It's, a, it's almost creedal. It's like, okay, if you believe this prophecy, if you believe this preaching, you're good. And I think that's really important. But if you read the New Testament, it wasn't that way. The way you knew you were saved, the evidence was the Ruach, the Spirit, right? Miracles, knowing God in this experiential way. Your intelligence gets illuminated, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You have a moral transformation. That's the books of First and Second Thessalonians, right? There was this evidence. It was evidence-based. Like, you are a different kind of person. You've been, you were dead bones, and now you're alive breathing, and you're an army for Jesus, right? Cornelius, we knew he was saved. How? Because all of a sudden God's spirit falls upon him and he begins to speak in tongues. They said, well, what in the world is happening here? The Gentiles can be saved. It wasn't because he confessed something. It was because the spirit came upon him and he was a transformed kind of person. Acts chapter two, they knew, hey, we're transformed people. Why? Because all of a sudden God's spirit falls upon us like tongues and there's a rushing wind and we go out and we preach and 3,000 people get saved and they have the same experience. So match, which one is it? It's both. It's prophesying God's word and the Ruach. You gotta have both. For a church to stand up and live, they don't live. Like everything's arranged right with the word. 
I think too often we just want to arrange everything right. I just want everything arranged right because it's safe. But they weren't alive until the Ruach came into them. My prayer for us in 2017 is, yeah, we get things arranged right because there's order and there needs to be those things. But man, we need the Ruach storm. We need Ezekiel chapter one. We need Ezekiel chapter 37. We need God's spirit to enliven us and empower us and do something bigger than we could ever do for his name and his glory and his kingdom. So I'm asking you guys, Core Edgewater, let's pray that way for 2017. God, may your Ruach storm, may we do things right doctrinally. We don't wanna be weird doctrinally, totally. We don't arrange things right. But man, we want your spirit. We want that Ruach. Without it, we can do nothing. So fill us and empower us and make us into an exceeding great army that transforms Grant's past for your name and for your kingdom. And so that's why this year I'm encouraging as many of us, let's read through the Bible. But not just to read through the Bible, let's read through the Bible. Yeah, to arrange things right, but as we're reading through the Bible, let's be praying, may your Ruach fall upon us. May we come alive through this. May we stand on the shoulders of these giants that we get to read about and may we have life like an exceeding great army. Read and pray with me. And so Jesus, you are our shepherd king. You are our hope. You are the one that gives us new hearts and breathes upon us your spirit. And we wanna be ordered and doing things right, but oh, we need your spirit. And so I pray for every person in here. I pray for myself. May your Ruach, may your spirit enliven me. May the deadness in me, Lord, the coldness, the dryness, Lord God, be transformed into life. And may I live in 2017. May each of us live in 2017, filled, enabled, empowered by your spirit. May we see Grant's past changed for your holy name and for your kingdom. And we pray this in your name. Amen.